Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My lift, I seize pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My ride, I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Drill, baby, drill. How are you, Dave? Doing well. 58 degrees in Bernie, Texas right now. Wow. It's like the Northeast. Yeah, we're at 55 going to 57 after a, a full day of rain yesterday. Not quite as bad as a few weeks ago when we had all those troubles uh, the night of convocation, but it kind of brought some of those memories back as we're hopping over puddles and trying to avoid uh, the standing water coming home on the train last night. It's nice, though, that fresh air. I think there are two weather patterns here in Texas. It's the Colorado pattern or the Gulf pattern. Colorado, it's nice and cool and you feel like you're there and you get fresh air. Uh, the Gulf pattern's a little different. It's a little, it's <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. Well, it makes sense because now that we're, you know, October baseball feels like it ought to be a little bit cooler. Shouldn't be 95 degrees. Good win for the Braves last night. Uh, one down, three to go. And, uh, but what we've heard some complaints about our, uh, sports picks. I mean, how could that, how could that happen given just how on the spot we've been all year we have yeah. LA, excuse me, Las Vegas insiders listening to the show. They don't care anything about <laughs> viewing politics through a classical lens, but they just listen to those last five minutes. That's right. They just fast forward right, right to the end and then, you know, lock in their picks. Yeah. Yeah. We got a comment on, on the last episode. Uh, I'll start with the positive said, I love the politics through a classical lens, NBA picks. Not so much. I predict Matt and Dave are skunked on finals picks. And so uh, this particular listener says Lakers will win more than the Celtics and Denver versus Atlanta in the NBA finals. Um, Now the good news is, you know, we may be done with season three before the NBA season ends. So we may never have to admit we're wrong if we are wrong on this, but I don't know, Denver, Atlanta, I mean, possible, but I'm not super confident in those picks. Sounds like someone from Colorado who cares about the NBA a lot. I've got a a couple people I'm thinking of who may have made that comment. So you kind of hunt down these critical comments. You (laughs) welcome them and then you figure out who's, who's saying this stuff, but uh, all good, all good sport. But uh, we, we try to say nice things at the end, encouraging responses, but boy, if you, if you come back with the slightest bit of criticism, we're bringing the hammer down. That's right. We're like the, the interweb, as Bill Belichick would say. <laughs> well, we'll come back to baseball at the end of the show and make our, our picks for the rest of the series. Uh, in the meantime, we've got three more chapters from Aristotle's Politics, book three. So in chapter 11 of book three, Aristotle takes up a claim that he's been working through that the multitude, the many, ought to be supreme rather than the few. And he says that there's an element of truth in this argument. It's an argument that's completely free from difficulty. So what is the argument that the multitude ought to be supreme rather than the few? He argues that the many, when they meet together, may likely be better than the few who are good. So the more of a composite that you have, 
uh, the more of a collective that you have, the better able that collective is to do the political thing. Uh, so when the many come together, uh, they're better or, or more effective than one man or a few men. And he uses the example of uh, being a judge of music or poetry, that the many are better judges than a single man of music and poetry, which is really interesting. You might say, okay, well, that, that could have been the case, right? In the 17th century, uh, is it the case based upon what you hear on Sirius XM in the year <laughs> 2021? Uh, likewise, it, it may have been the case in, in various fine arts uh, throughout um, some of the uh, Renaissance and, and, and great periods of art, but is it the case uh, now? But that's that's the case that uh, Aristotle sets forth. What do you make of that idea, Matt, that the many coming together could be a better judge because they are a more complete composite? Yeah, I think it's interesting because, you know, you think about if they make a decision democratically, how much do those individual elements of expertise really benefit the group, right? It depends on whether the group will listen to the expert. I think about how we, we do some things like in a faculty assembly at, at, uh, at King's. And, and so there's generally a, a deference when it comes to, say, a curriculum matter to the subject matter expert. This person knows this discipline well. And so, you know, if, if they think this class should be revised in a certain way, uh, in general, we'll defer to that person's judgment. And so there will be a democratic affirmation of that. And if that person's judgment seems skewed by personal interest in some way or something, we might go a different direction. But, but in general, we would regard that person's expertise as, as being uh, an important element in making a decision. Does the crowd work that way, right? When you get 5,000 people together in a town square and they all collectively know everything, right? You have experts in that 5,000 individuals in every discipline and every element of, of governing perhaps, uh, but will that crowd defer to the expertise of those individuals? Will it, will it take the wisdom that's here and there in part, and somehow find a way to accumulate that, or will it simply follow its passions? And I think that's you know what we experience and we, we, we see as we look over the history of democratic regimes is that it's, it's often the, the collective passion rather than the collective wisdom that directs the course of the multitude. Another example that comes to mind on this idea that the, the multitude may be a, a better judge, if you think of some of the patterns of church governance that come out of the Protestant Reformation, right? There are arguments that are made, right? That the collective whole within a covenantal body would be better able to decide matters than say having those matters be decided by the one or the few uh, without any kind of access uh, to, to judgment made, made by that many. But I think a, a second interesting modern development is that here Aristotle is talking about a multitude and it coming together as a composite but most modern political philosophers and statesmen recognize that within the multitude, there's going to be a majority and a minority. And the great danger when you have a multitude gathering together is that majority within it uh, will stamp um, on the rights of, of the minority, will, will outshout, uh, will outpace, outfight uh, the, the minority. And then at the end of the day, you're just going to have a judgment that is made uh, by, by that crowd that can kind of impose its will uh, upon others. So, you know, something else to think about when we're, we're talking about multitudes, especially with the presence of faction in our own day, to say that we want the multitude to rule is one thing, but what happens if that multitude is made up of different composites that are fighting with one another? 
Well, Aristotle brings up two other problems here. Uh, so he states, as is his way, he states that this could be the argument uh, for uh, the many uh, gathering together and being better than the few. But what if you had a composite of good men? Uh, would that even be a better uh, coming together of, of individuals? It's not the multitude, but it's the coming together of the few. So here Aristotle is reminding us that it's not a matter of number, it's a matter of combination that produces a better result within, within a body. And maybe you have that better result if you have you know, 50 or so you know, good men come together, say it's happened with the Constitutional Convention, right? There's, there's something there that, that, that an argument could be made. And then the second outlier that he brings up is, you know, could you say the same thing of what he'll call brutes or, or barbarians, individuals really that have no moral or intellectual uh, compass simply by gathering that group together, uh, would you have come up with an excellent composite? And, and of course the answer would be no, because there'd be no regulating factor uh, for those brutes. Perhaps this is the argument that you're making, Matt, about the multitude today, not having those kind of regulating factors. Uh, comments on those two outliers. Right. I think it's, you know, as you're saying, it, it, it's showing that there's an element of quality as well as quantity. So having a large number of individuals, even, even though they may uh, have a variety of backgrounds and, and stories and skills, if they don't have the necessary ones in the right proportions, they don't have collectively wisdom and the wisdom to recognize wisdom when it's presented before them, then the multitude won't be able to uh, govern well. And so, you know, I think one of the things that Aristotle is really doing for us is, is trying to set up some challenges for us as we think about how, how do you do popular government properly? What, what is the ultimate purpose? How, how are you using elections? And if you're going to use elections, um, how do you try to structure elections or, or, or teach citizens as voters to exercise their franchise properly in a way that leads toward a flourishing society, toward the reduction of faction, toward the elevation of justice and, and wise policy, rather than simply seeing that as an avenue for, for self-expression and for pursuing one's own personal interests or ideology. So on that point of the necessity of qualified judgment among the many, he recognizes that their folly may lead them into error, in his words, that their dishonesty may lead them into crime. But there's a danger also in not allowing them to take part in the government. So the answer that he comes up with, at least the answer uh, within this context, is to assign the multitude some deliberative and judicial functions within the regime. So you're not going to give them the ultimate power within the regime, but you're going to give them part of the regime. And I think we spoke a couple of weeks ago about jury trial as being an example where the multitude plays a part in the regime. And that's a good thing to have that participation of the multitude could strengthen the regime, but you have to be very careful on what power you give the multitude. So here, when he turns to the question of the power of election, he's going to argue that right election, so choosing your, your rulers, can only be made by those who have knowledge. So if you give up that uh, electoral power uh, to the people, you better have some safeguards in place. And the two that he mentions is a, are the laws uh, and a good constitution uh, that uh, kind of counter those those elements of, of the multitude choosing leaders that might lead the regime down the wrong path. And, and this is how he, he ends 
chapter chapter 11 of this discussion. So I, I think if we were to take this discussion of election and um, giving given the multitude some power and bring it up to the late 18th century, what is the argument, Matt, made by the, the founders or some particular founders on this question of how much power ought to be given to the people? Well, it's interesting because, you know, if, again, if you work through the Federalist, um, they're boasting of the fact that the qualifications for holding office and for voting, the, the bar is very low, right? For the you know, voting, uh, if you can vote for the most numerous part of your state legislature, you can vote for the House. And if you're 25 years old and you've been a citizen for seven years and you live in the state you want to represent, that's all it takes to be a representative if you can get the votes. So, you know, they have not in the Constitution created a system where it's a a small number of people that are either able to hold office or to vote for office. And so if you read the contemporaneous writings around the Federalist and other founding era documents, you see an emphasis on education, that that there's going to need to be, people are going to have to be trained in in the character of the regime. They're going to have to be shaped by the the ideas and ideals of that regime so that as they're exercising that that franchise, as as they're making choices, as they're choosing to run for office even, uh, they're doing so in, in, in a way that leads toward the common good, leads toward justice. And you know, it's, it's not something that just happens automatically because you've set up election processes. There's going to have to be some element of, of, of preparation for people for exercising that responsibility. You think about you know, bringing down down to the contemporary day. How well are we doing that? Uh, what, what's our civic education look like? Uh, is, it, is it designed to buttress the regime and to direct people toward the common good and, and toward justice? Uh, or is it ideological? Is it, is it about uh, moving people uh, in the direction of exercising their passions or, or building upon matters of, of personal interest or identity uh, rather than seeking the common good? Yeah, many of our writings on the Federalist Papers have emphasized this element of that writing where there is, there is an important moral quality to living within a republic, and moral qualities to holding different offices in in the Republic and how essential it is for the people to know what those qualities are and to select those leaders uh, in accordance with those qualities. I think that we'd also recognize within the Federalists that that they believe that self-interest plays a great part in how society functions. And there's an effort there to direct self-interest toward the common interest. But there's no doubt after reading the Federalist Papers, that this idea of a common interest or a common good will be central to the proper functioning of the regime. So it's really interesting. That's kind of where Aristotle will go next. He'll talk about um, in all sciences and arts, the end is the good and the greatest good and in the highest degree of good and the most authoritative of all this is political science of which the good is justice. So uh, here, Aristotle takes this discussion where we're having a difficult time figuring out what power to give to the multitude. And he brings up the reality that goodness is justice, that goodness is the common interest. That hasn't answered the question, okay, well, who should rule and who should choose who should rule, but at least it gets us in the proper uh, orientation to how we might think about the question. So the example that he uses is an interesting one. Who ought to be provided with the best flutes? 
And he argues that the best flute player ought to be provided with the best flutes, not the tallest, not the wealthiest, uh, not the fastest, but the individual who can play that flute well ought to be provided with the best flutes. So excellence is the attribute that we're looking for, not only in flute playing, but in good rule. Okay, that answers part of it. We're looking for excellent rulers, but excellence in what sense? And here is where he points out four attributes that might provide a claim to one's excellence. So I'll go through these, Matt, and then I'll get your feedback on what you think about each of these four. There's a certain excellence, he argues, to wealth, a certain excellence to, to freedom. In fact, um, wealth and freedom are necessary elements for any people to live within society. They need to be able to have a certain sustenance there, and they ought to be able to um, kind of use uh, their logos, their speech or thought, uh, to make choices. But then he adds two other attributes that he thinks that are, are central that ought, to, that ought to play into this question of ruling and being ruled. And those are justice and valor or justice and nobility. He also uses the word virtue for justice uh, in certain um, places in this, in this text. Of all these four, justice and valor help us live well. Wealth and freedom are necessary to us living, but it's going to be a combination of claims made to each of these four things that we have to kind of decipher as we're thinking about excellent rule. What do you make of these four attributes, Matt? Well, wealth and freedom really takes us back to our conversation last week where we were talking about oligarchy and democracy. Well, what, what is the relative claim that the rich have to political power? Well, it's the fact that they contribute taxes and they, they, they fund the government, which is a necessary thing. And what's the relative claim that the many have? Well, it's that they're free and they're the soldiers. They're the ones that fill the various economic positions in society. Right? Again, they do necessary tasks, at the foundation of, of having a city at all. So, so wealth and freedom give you a relative claim to some political authority. But if you go back to the flute player, it's the flute playing, excellence in that. And so what's the, what's the analog? Well, if, if the goal of government is justice, then that person which knows justice the best and is best able to bring about justice, so it's, it's a knowledge of, of the nature of the thing as well as the means for bringing it about, that's the essential virtue. Right. And of course, a desire to bring it about, not just the knowledge of it, but but the personal character that leads you to desire justice and to pursue the course that, you know, is right. So that's going to be the, the best title to political office. Now, of course, the challenge is how do we actually identify those with that title? And it's interesting, the beginning of Federalist 57, Madison makes a very similar argument. He says we need people that are that are wise and virtuous in office. And we need to keep them virtuous while they're in office. That's, that's the essential task. That every government has that essential task. And in a republic, he says, the way we do that is through election. Now, he, he leaves it a little bit unclear in the way he describes it, whether that's the best way of doing this. He goes on to talk about how elections do create accountability and responsibility in office holders and makes the best case he can for that. But, but he's, he's recognizing that that's the method we've chosen. Right in our in our popular system, we're using elections as the means of identifying the wise and virtuous, and as the means of maintaining the virtue of those individuals once they're in office. Well, your commentary points to the 
necessity of having proper sight in being able to identify these things. And it certainly seems to me that in the year 2021, people can identify what wealth is and, and what it isn't. And they can also identify what freedom is and what it isn't. But most of the claims to rule that we see today are made by people arguing to others that your freedom is being taken away from you. Elect me, I'll give it back to you. Or you don't have the wealth that you should have because someone else has it. Elect me and I'll give you that wealth. So our rulers' claims to rule are based upon the things that we more easily identify with. They're easier to see when you have or you don't have wealth. It's easier to see when your freedom is being taken away from you or not. So uh, what's being left out in this picture of proper rule or living well are those attributes that are more difficult to see. Is it more difficult to see what justice is? Is it more difficult to see what valor is? Is it more difficult to see what virtue is? And by the way, do we have many rulers who, when they're up for election, are making the case, elect me because I'm just, valorous, or virtuous? No, more often than not, we live within a setting of who gets what, when, and how, uh, whether it's uh, a matter of freedom uh, or wealth. And I think that's a really interesting uh, digression that we've made, which um, makes us wonder where, where we're going unless virtue, nobility, justice, and valor are brought back into our political vernacular. And they just don't seem to be there that often, especially uh, in how we talk about one another, uh, whether it's you know what we're arguing, why you should elect me or why, why you shouldn't elect the other person. We never say that the other person that's up against us in a race is just or valorous, but just misguided. That's not, not what we hear, correct? <laughs> I think you're right. Okay. So final chapter, chapter 13 of book three, then takes on a really, really interesting question that, that I think also has a great contemporary application. Education and virtue ought to have a superior claim to rule. And yet if the emphasis is on other things, and it's not on nobility, it's not on virtue, it's not on valor, it's not on justice. What will happen if you have an individual who seems out of place within the political community because they care about those things that the political community doesn't care about? And, and here he argues that in regimes like this in the ancient world, what was brought into being was this method of ostracism where the individual who cares about justice or excellence in the right way, not fitting in with the political community, had to be ostracized by that political community because they cared for something different than excellence. They cared for equality more than excellence and equality. What do you make of that as a method of, of ridding people <laughs> who don't fit within your regime? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's a very democratic thing, right? So we, we, we demand equality. Uh, we recognize that there is a, a fundamental human equality grounded in our being made in the image of God. But then we think about, well, we want to extend that equality uh, beyond that realm into other areas and, and you know, level things. And some people refuse to be leveled uh, or at least will not be easily leveled. And so, the, again, the practice in the ancient world was you send them out five years, 10 years, make them leave the city. I think what happens in our day is that some people just kind of withdraw 
And so, you know, you wonder, as you look at the field of candidates for the presidency, and we've had some pretty big fields, right, in recent years, and you, and you look down through the list and you think, okay, well, yeah, that one's not too bad or that will be okay. But you wonder, is, is there anybody better, right? Is, is there somebody who, whose excellence we could really use? And yet that person looks at the scene and says, yeah, but do I really want to have to run through that gauntlet? Right? Is, is, this, is this method of, of choosing presidents such that it's likely that if, if I commit to that, that it's going to be worthwhile? Um, and, and I'm going to likely have a chance to show that excellence that I may possess. You know, Hamilton was very concerned about this at the time of the American founding and making sure that the Constitution had offices that the best people would desire. Uh, and, and the problem under the articles, even before the articles, was that that wasn't the case. If you were really talented, what did you do under the articles? You were probably governor of your state or you were a diplomat abroad. Uh, there was really nothing to do in the Congress under the Articles. There was no way to assert your excellence and to serve the country in that way. The presidency was designed to create that possibility and maybe some of the other executive offices and as well as you know, Supreme Court seats, even members of Congress have, have an opportunity to do that. But in a, in a mass society with a, a mass media orientation toward our elections and our politics, uh, you might wonder, are we missing out? on those that would be most virtuous and wise who maybe don't even decide to enter the political game at all. So what you're suggesting here that is that there's a certain self ostracism that exists in our contemporary context where the individual says, I don't want to run that gauntlet. I don't want to be out there in front. Uh, I don't want to have those individuals who may not be judging me on the right grounds, have that judgment over me. So you just, you choose to opt out and I think that I think what you're hitting upon is really true here because and it's not simply true of um, leading a political community or being an elected official. I think it also plays its way into different organizations. Are there many individuals, for example, who might serve as a great educational leader who choose not to because having to take on that position requires a, a leveling that is not to their liking, is not um, to their understanding of what um, justice is. I would never suggest such a thing for college faculty in particular, having been now a retired college faculty member for 25 years and, and in kind of figuring out who wants to be a college administrator. But I, I will say this, there's a certain ease of life when you're not in the corner office of a, a, of a faculty, uh, when you're just a, a member in the faculty lounge. Any that comments on that matter? That I can agree with. Yeah. <laughs> and, and part of the challenge is, um, you know, the, the burden of leadership where, you know, putting it back in the political sphere where you, you wonder what, what positively can be done, right? Mm -hmm. is, it, is it worth all the scrutiny and, and all the, 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 the foolish debates and discussions and all the, the hoops you have to jump through if at the end of the day, there's not much that can actually be accomplished, and if that's the case, then why why would you bother? Right? Yeah, Even and we're not you... talking about having utopian dreams that you're going to create heaven upon earth. That you're just looking to create something better, create something more optimal, uh, create something that produces greater flourishing. If there's doubt as to whether or not your actions as a leader could produce just that, then like you said, you know, why would you undergo the scrutiny? You know, what what would be 
if, if what brought you there was your desire for that better or, or more excellent, you know, why would you, why would you undergo that scrutiny? I think that's a, that's a really, you might do it out of, um, you know, a sense of servant leadership. You might do it out of a sense that if you don't do it, then, um, people will suffer. So there, there are some elements there that might, might bring you into uh, that position anyway. But I think it's just, it's really good to, to think about not simply in the realm of politics, but in the realm uh, of life. And then, you know, is there a remedy for that? Is there, is there a remedy for that self-ostracism? What might be done to encourage better leadership? Uh, might it involve uh, a, a greater appreciation uh, for um, common interest, common, common good, justice, a, a new type of vocabulary that you could talk about or that you could then consider things uh, that um, would allow you and would allow those people who wanted to partake in that conversation and perhaps lead that conversation to do so. I, I think there, there could be a remedy there. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think uh, you, you, know, you mentioned a couple of ways of thinking about this, the idea of, of servant leadership, and you could take it back to, to Plato and you know, who do we want as the leaders of our city, well, it's those that don't want to lead the city, right? Who, who would prefer something else, um, but, but do so because they recognize that the alternative is worse. And so, you know, that kind of reluctance uh, to lead is something that you want to cultivate, but also for the right reasons, you want individuals nevertheless to be willing to step forward in certain circumstances. And I think, you know, there's, there's different ways of creating a context where that's likely to happen, the, the piece that Hamilton, of course, is really focused on is ambition. You want to be able to make a mark. You want to be able to do something that's memorable, that, that can be remembered, and, and to make your name in history. That was something he, he was worried about, that uh, if there weren't adequate powers associated with offices, then people that had those ambitions would, would uh, turn away and, and find some other means to express themselves. Um, but, but you also have other pieces where you say, yeah, but that's, that's not really what I want to do. I, but I, I do want to be able to make a productive contribution to the, the common good here. I, I do want to be able to act in a way that, that I can see um, benefits those that I'm leading and, and those that are in the broader orbit of whatever institution we're talking about. And so can you create a context in which that's plausible, right? Can you, can you make it so that there's room for individuals who want to, to humbly serve and and to pursue the common good can, can plausibly say, yeah, this, this is possible in this institution at this time in this setting. Well, it's not possible if you're critical of right political ambition, right? That if, if you believe that the right type of political ambition is in and of itself a, a bad thing, then it probably won't be possible within that realm. Anyway, great conversation. I think it's kind of interesting that, that Aristotle ends on, on this front and and we're dealing with this kind of same crisis all from the question of who should rule and what attributes should go into good rule and whether or not uh, good people will want to rule um, the right people will want to rule uh, still very much a question for today so to be continued uh, as we move our way through book three for next week yep we'll wrap up book three with the final chapters there next time around uh, we'll wrap up the show this week by returning to the crystal ball uh, despite the misgivings of our of our listener, which we talked about at the beginning of the show, uh, we're going to go game by game the rest of the World Series. So we're doing this on Wednesday morning, which means we only know about the results of game one. Of course, by the time you're listening to it, you'll know a few more results. You'll know which of us is on a better track here. 
Uh, but let's just go game by game, Dave. So game two uh, tonight. What do you think? Uh, Max Reed pitches well. The lefties on the uh, Atlanta bullpen uh, continue this streak of uh, pitching throughout uh, all these series. They've just been masterful, and uh, and we get an, another Braves uh, victory. So uh, Braves win two, take two in Houston. Okay, I agree with you on that. I think, again, Max Fried's going to pitch great. Uh, no, no doubt they'll need a few innings from the bullpen at the end, but I, I think uh, Atlanta, as you say, walks out of there with with two wins. Game three, what do you think Friday night? Braves take that game as, as well. Uh, I don't know who will be pitching for them. Probably Anderson will be pitching on uh, Friday. Uh, so I, I think he pitches another good game, hands it off to the bullpen, kind of, Three in a row so that when people are listening to this show on Saturday morning, if you listen on Saturday mornings, you'll be uh, facing the prospect of a brave sweep that evening of the Astros. Okay. Yeah. I think it's going to be Houston in game three. Uh, they haven't identified the Braves pitcher yet. You're right, probably Anderson, but uh, I think I think Houston gets one back. The bats wake up for game three, and it's two to one going to game four Saturday night. So I'm just going for the full sweep Saturday night before Halloween. It all gets decided on one of those old fashioned major league seasons where you don't go beyond Halloween. <laughs> uh, Drew Smiley, you know, comes in uh, game four, probably starts it. And uh, the only hard thing is, is, you know, given that the bullpen, I think, will will be the key to the Braves win if they win. Uh, who do you pick in that bullpen um, as, as the MVP? You probably don't. You probably pick one of those individuals who may hit uh, – two, three home runs over the next uh, couple nights. So um, I don't have an MVP choice. I just think that uh, if the Braves are going to win, uh, they better win early in this series because they lost Morton last night and they're down to 11 pitchers. Uh, and if the Astros bats ever awaken, uh, they will win a long series, I believe. All right. Well, so you take the sweep. I'm going to take Atlanta in game four as well. So I've got him 3-1 uh, going into Sunday where that would be Charlie Morton's regular turn, I think. These days you can't really rely on the starter rotations the way you used to because there's so much bullpen work and bullpen days and whatever, but that would have probably been Morton's start. I think Houston wins that one to make it 3-2 and send it back to Houston. And then game six, Atlanta, uh, Max Fried wins his second start. I'm going to take him for the MVP if you go 2-0 in a six-game series, unless somebody really does amazing things hitting, you're probably going to be the MVP. So I'm going to take Max Fried as the MVP in a 4-2 Atlanta victory before the disappointed fans in Houston. Always grateful for you listening and look forward to continuing the conversation next week. Don't forget to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform and to contact us, Democracy in America Today at gmail.com. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>